Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Jason. Welcome to Skipped on Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. Today, we're going to be talking about the group U2 and their song, The Refugee, from their 1983 album, War. One of the things that's really interesting about the group U2 is that they are, by multiple metrics, one of the biggest bands in the world of all time. I mean, this band is just massive, massively huge, so much bigger than so many other bands. Yet at the same time, there are so many people who like not just don't like U2, but actively hate U2. And I, don't, I before we started recording this episode, we were trying to figure out like what other bands have this, and I don't know. I don't. I don't really think there are too many. At least none that like immediately jump to mind at the, at this level of fame. We mean, yeah, like yeah. yeah. And and I even have to like half raise my hand to that. It's like I'll I enjoy the greatest hits, and there are some U two songs I really enjoy. But yeah, there's something about this band that is just distasteful, and I don't know if it's like pompous like like just bono is is, 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 <laughs> is probably is it the is probably the reason <laughs> it, it, he, he might be the sole reason for that and yeah uh, and it's just like there are other you know sing, like obnoxious singers like that so i don't know how he's different from other people that i, I look the other way on you know like we, we did the the smith episode in morrissey it's like Mor- morrissey is by far a more distasteful person but it doesn't affect my enjoyment of the music but somehow Bono does? Yeah, I think it's the I think it's the 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 seriousness of the pompousness, you know? I mean, like we did an Oasis episode and Oasis is especially Noel and Liam, you know, they constantly refer to themselves as the greatest band in the world and Noel Gallagher is always he he constantly is referring to himself as god, but you can tell it's all like in jest, like you can tell it's like yeah, I really like what I do and I'm really happy, you know, being this rock star or whatever. And that's that. And I'm making all these grandiose statements, but it's, it's, it's tongue in cheek. It's kind of silly. Whereas you really believe that Bono and the edge truly do think about themselves in this grandiose way. And that's what kind of puts them off for me. Yeah. And we were talking about this before, but you know, the deciding to, just go ahead and put your album on people's phones like they did. If any, any, anybody remembers that a few years back, it wasn't even like a, a very memorable album. Like people probably remember that record more for the way it showed up automatically on people's iPhones than yeah. any actual song or anything else <laughs> about, about that album. And I feel like, yeah, it's that kind of just over the top. There's no subtlety. No, I feel like no, it, yeah. it, it, with you two and and that, and that might be the thing that kind of bothers me but it's also the thing that makes them enjoyable to some extent like you 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 see what you get right yeah and 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 what's what's so fascinating to me about the band and is is how they had this like beginning period in their first like three four or five records where they really were like this really good 
kind of raw, kind of punkish band, you know, like the, the pretension was a small part of it and the music was a bigger factor. And I feel like as time has gone on, that has reversed. And now the pretension is, is where it's at. And the music is kind of in the background and yeah, you kind of, you, you forget about the humble beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why when, when I decided I wanted to do this, this YouTube episode, I was like, okay, we're going to focus on the early, the first phase of their career and try and find something that doesn't really represent the band now to the point that I feel like with this song that we're talking about today, The Refugee, I feel like we could play this for many, many people, even people who might even say that they are U2 fans and they would be like, who's this? Like they wouldn't know that this is a U2 song because it doesn't sound like With or Without You. It doesn't sound like Mysterious Ways or One or any of their like ginormous hits. It sounds very, very different from that. And uh, so I really, I, I, I think that this episode is probably going to help people who maybe don't like U2 at all. Hopefully they're going to maybe think to themselves, oh, maybe I should check some of this older stuff out because this is different. And then, you know, the people who are already diehard U2 fans are just going to nod their heads with everything we say about the song and be like, yep, I've known that for a long time because I'm a diehard fan. (laughs) Every song is great. The beginnings of U2 start at a small school in Dublin called Mount Temple Comprehensive School. There, 14-year-old drummer Larry Mullen Jr. posted a notice on the school's bulletin board saying that he was looking for musicians to start a band. On September 25, 1976, Mullen and six other boys met at his house to jam and figure out what the band would be. Very quickly, the group thinned out to just five members, Paul Hewson, who would later be known as Bono on vocals, David Evans, who would later be known as The Edge on guitar, his brother Dick Evans on second guitar, Adam Clayton on bass, and Mullen on drums. The group called themselves Feedback. Feedback's biggest influences were early punk acts such as The Jam, The Clash, Sex Pistols, Buzzcocks, etc. Roughly six months after forming, the five-piece band played its first gig for a paying audience at a nearby Irish high school. However, Feedback wasn't quite settled on its name or its lineup, and by March 1978, the band had changed its name to U2, and Dick Evans had exited the group to focus on going to college. Reportedly, the band chose the name U2 when a friend of theirs gave them a list of six band name ideas, and U2 was the one the band members hated the least. (laughs) With the lineup and name solidified, U2 started gigging all around Ireland, building quite a buzz for themselves. They recorded and released some demos and eventually released a debut EP simply titled Three due to it having just three songs. The EP had a thousand limited physical copies made, all of which sold out almost immediately. Check out one of the tracks on that EP here called Boy Girl to get an idea of what very early U2 sounded like. Funny now. 
Based on the success of that EP, as well as the band's growing accolades for its live shows, U2 signed with Island Records in 1980. The band immediately went into the studio to record their debut album, simply titled Boy. The album featured two of the three songs on the band's debut EP, as well as the first single from U2 to chart in America, I Will Follow. Boy received positive reviews, and the band's supporting tour also showed U2 had real promise to become a much larger act. Unfortunately, that tour wasn't all good news. In 1981, a briefcase owned by Paul Hewson, now officially going by the stage name Bono, was lost at some point. Inside were lyrics and song ideas the band had created for their second record. With all that material gone, the band entered the studio to record their second record largely unprepared and were forced to be more improvisational as a result. The chaotic recording sessions wasn't the only thing causing the band problems. Bono, The Edge, and Larry Mullen Jr. were then part of a Christian group called the Shalom Fellowship. The inner conflicts each member faced reconciling their deeply held religious beliefs and their new rock stardom were getting too heavy, and the band members briefly considered disbanding U2. However, the three members eventually decided to leave the Christian group instead and continue with the band. This crisis of faith is not the first time the Christian beliefs of three of the band members causes issues for the band as a whole, but we'll touch on that later. Despite all this turmoil, the band released their second full-length album in 1981. Titled October, the first single from the record was called Fire. Fire received good reviews, but it didn't last long on the charts, and the October album received mixed reviews overall. Eventually, the band had run out of money. Everyone, including the band members themselves, were disappointed with October and resolved that their third album would need to be a make-or-break effort. The band rented a cottage in a small Irish town and spent weeks writing and rehearsing new material. This resulted in their third record, titled War, and the lead single from that album, New Year's Day, shot up the charts in multiple countries. Check it out here. Oh, 
New Year's Day, as well as the album's second single, the now legendary Sunday Bloody Sunday, helped War achieve great commercial and critical success. War is also the album where we find our song today, The Refugee, but we'll get back to that in a bit. The tour to support War was also the band's most successful to date, helping them to graduate from clubs to theaters and eventually to arenas. The tour peaked with a performance at the famous Red Rocks Amphitheater during a torrential rainstorm. This performance, captured on film in the concert movie Under a Blood Red Sky, is frequently heralded as one of the most iconic and important concerts of all time. The success of War came at an important time for the band, as it was now able to renegotiate its record deal. U2 leveraged its new success to make more money and gain more control over their output. This helped the band get much more experimental with its next record, titled The Unforgettable Fire. This album would go on to be massively successful, even more so than War, no doubt helped by the chart-topping success of lead single Pride in the Name of Love. With two hit records under their belt, U2 toured the world in enormous venues. In March of 1985, Rolling Stone magazine called U2 the band of the 80s, arguing that for a growing number of young people, U2 might be the only band that matters. I'm sure that didn't go to Bado's head at all. (laughs) If things had been going up for the band at this point, things only got crazier when U2 performed at the now legendary Live Aid concert in 1985. The concert was broadcasted on TV to over 2 billion people and made U2 into an international sensation, thanks to Bono's stage antics, which saw him enter the crowd of 72,000 concertgoers and begin to dance with and embrace them. Following this, U2 went back into the studio to record the follow-up to The Unforgettable Fire. The resulting album would not only be the band's biggest, but also one of the most popular and critically acclaimed records of all time, The Joshua Tree spawning multiple hits including Where the Streets Have No Name, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, In God's Country, and Bullet the Blue Sky, the album was simply a phenomenon. It also contained one of U2's biggest singles ever and possibly even their most well-known song, With or Without You. During the tour to promote The Joshua Tree, the band decided to make another concert film, which would be called Rattle and Hum, a reference to the song Bullet the Blue Sky. The film, unfortunately, ended up stopping the band's career in its tracks due to the overtop pretension it exhibited. Critics and fans alike lambasted the group for thinking they were far more important than they were, as the film and companion album made direct comparisons of U2's music to other artists, including The Beatles, Bob Dylan, B.B. King, and Jimi Hendrix, among others. 
Additionally, the film itself just wasn't very good, with poorly lit shots and minimal camera movement, resulting in an unexciting film and even downright boring movie. If Under a Blood Red Sky was an incredible concert film, this was the exact opposite of that. With the unbridled success of the Joshua Tree album now marred by this critically and commercially disappointing film, the band retreated from the spotlight to regroup and plan out their next moves. This was a pivotal moment for U2 in which the band put the brakes on their momentum for the first time since starting. Thus marks the end of the first phase of U2's career. After this, the band would explore different sounds, a different look, and even different personas as it satirically played around with its own celebrity. This resulted in albums such as Aktung Baby, Zarupa, and Pop, as well as the -the over-the-top spectacle of concert tours, such as the much-ridiculed Pop Mart tour, which saw the band playing in front of a giant lemon in bizarre outfits. With this, U2 essentially stopped being the U2 people had known, and instead became a kind of avant-garde pop group. You can hear how different the band became on one of its more eclectic singles from this period, Numb. With the band's albums selling in much lower numbers and their critical praise weakening throughout the 90s, U2 would reinvent itself again with the blatantly commercial album All That You Can't Leave Behind, which saw the band accepting its superstardom and trying to live within it comfortably for the first time. This period of U2 continues to this day with middle-of-the-road pop albums such as How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, No Line on the Horizon, and the pair of albums Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. But let's go back now to 1983 when the band was prepping to release War, the album that needed to be a hit to save their career. We'll talk about that and the song The Refugee, which all happened at a time when U2 wasn't the biggest band in the world, but a group of four Irish kids trying their damnedest to be a terrific rock band. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. I think the War album is really interesting because, as Scott mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the song we're, we're talking about today, The Refugee, when I first listened to it, if you hadn't told me it was U2, I wouldn't recognize it as U2. And it seems funny on a record that has some super iconic U2 tracks, like Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day, like things that still sound like U2 to this day, things that they still try to emulate a little bit in in some way at least being these like 
big anthemic rock songs. But then there's stuff like The Refugee where they try something different or even a song like Drowning Man, which is this cool kind of weird atmospheric, almost mystical sounding song that seems like it would fit in on on Joshua Tree or even Unforgettable Fire when they start to do a little bit more experimentation with their sound. So it's cool to listen to this record because it's you two basically heading in every direction simultaneously it seems where it's like okay we're gonna be a little bit more pop here we're gonna be a little bit you know try 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 something a little bit more punk here and see what kind of ends up working for us which you can imagine you know sitting around the studio because they just had the shitty experience making october with being like all our ideas we we just got thrown in the studio and we had to do it versus you know sitting down in a band that's like okay this is our third record what are we doing where are we going Right, yeah. No, I, I think I think war. I I definitely have a personal anecdote that relates exactly to what you're talking about. Where I was when I was in my band back in the day, we were in the van touring, and we were you know in who knows where in the middle of America somewhere. And I put on war, so it was me and the rest of my group just you know driving along in the van, looking out the window, and my drummer Jeff, uh, he he asked me. He said he said, "Who is this?" And I was like, this is U2. He's like, this is not U2. And Jeff is one of those people that hates U2. Like, he hates U2. I I think because of Bono's pretension and all that stuff. And, you know, he was, like, astonished. He was like, I had no idea that U2 ever sounded like this. I was like, yeah, their early stuff was a lot different, whatever. So yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely totally agree that this is a, this is a record that has so many dichotomies to it where, uh, even, I mean, you know, we could even get, get super, uh, super direct and talk about like the the name of the album and the cover for those of you who don't know the cover of the album is just a close-up picture of a young boy probably like eight years old maybe nine years old very young boy just a close-up on his face he looks kind of angry he looks like he's been playing in the dirt a little bit and then in huge red letters is just war and it's like you know this dichotomy between this like kind of innocence of this kid and then you know this 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 writing that makes you know this title that makes it seem like it's just like juxtaposition between the two. So very clearly, this is an album from a band that's ready to take some chances, you know, with both its sound and its image and all that stuff and go in directions that maybe they weren't, they weren't totally prepared to go in, but they're like, we need to do this because like you said, like, I mean, this is it. We got to do this, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, and you listen to this album and you're like, okay, they, they really want my attention. Yeah. And they and they really do succeed in I feel like on this record in getting it where yeah I wouldn't go so far as to say I hate you too <laughs> I have a str- I have a I have a strong distaste that <laughs> but but you know even I found myself like really enjoying this record and I would never think like I would sit down beyond you know like a greatest hits and enjoy it as much as as I do on this one and yeah I think it's because they actually have a lot of the heart and passion that I feel like when you listen to the later U2 albums, it's just like, here's here's a rock song that sounds like a, a 2000s rock song. And I think like trying to get myself out of that mentality of of that that being my understanding of who U2 is. So, you know, in listening to this album, it's yeah, it's like a totally different band.
So as we were just saying, this album features some super, super iconic U2 stuff, whether it's the specific songs, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, New Year's Day, all these big hits, or just like the sound, you know, like the edges, crunchy, delay, guitar sound, Bono's like soaring vocals and the the tight rhythm section of of Larry and Adam and all, all these like, you know, U2 things. But it also features some of the things that a lot of people hate about U2, which is their uh, like never ending political commentary on whatever's going on. And this song that we're talking about today, The Refugee, is no different. This Obviously, the song is called The Refugee, so clearly it's going to have some sort of political bent. And it it's it's got a lot of the classic U2 things that, like I said, a lot of people don't like. It's a song that has a very distinct political statement. It's a song that is trying to convince you that the world has problems, but it's not Bono hitting you over the head with it like they kind of do on in their later career where it's like, you know, there's that 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 thing that people love to make fun of where Bono is clapping on stage and gets the audience to clap with him in like a repetitive beat. And then after he gets everybody doing it, he's like, this is how many, you know, every time we clap, somebody dies in Africa or whatever. And, you know, it's like this big emotional thing. Well, at least Bono thinks it's going to be this big emotional thing. But it ends just being people just being like, I'm at a concert. Like I'm supposed to be here to rock out. You know, I'm supposed to be having a good time. I've got a beer in my hand. I can't clap because I've got a beer in my hand at the same time. You know, like with, with the refugee, that kind of sentiment is there, but it's not quite so abusive with, with like your, you know, it's not being hit over the head. It's not being hit over your head as hard, uh, which, which I think is great. I, I, that's the kind of stuff I can get behind. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And there's also some ambiguity here because it's basically refers to someone who, you know, as as we hear repeated and the title of the record war over and over again. And it says, she's the refugee. I see your face. I see you staring back at me. War, war. She's the refugee. Her mama say one day she's going to live in America. So the song basically is just wherever you're trying to escape from and using America as this paradise basically which is repeated all throughout u2's career um especially you know in an album like the joshua tree that has all this kind of like spirituality of what america is and what america means so it's it's interesting that in in this song it's yeah essentially just any everybody can get behind whether it's actual war whether you feel like you're at war and needing to escape and go somewhere far away where things are peaceful so it's 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 that kind of yeah difference that you were pointing out between telling you specifically here's a problem in this region of the world as opposed to just you know war whether it's actual humans fighting one another or whether it's some kind of internal conflict like you can listen to the song and and get behind it. Yeah, totally. And and it's interesting that you that you mentioned that because uh there 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 were interviews with the band when this record came out. And of course, one of the most common questions that they would get asked would be like, why did you name the album War? And Bono and The Edge would would constantly refer to the idea that war is not just about battles and guns and tanks and all this stuff. They were like, you know, there's there's like these emotional battles that you have to take. There's, you know, the the war of a, a, a veteran, you know, coming home and having to deal with that transition from being on the battlefield to like being back at home and dealing with maybe they were maybe they were in a war that they 
people didn't really like the war, you know, that, like like Vietnam kind of thing where it was like, okay, we weren't really super supportive of this war and they're coming back from that. So war has a, is a word that can be can be, you know, used in so many different ways to refer to so many different things. And this song, The Refugee, is it brings to the mind that kind of imagery of like a war torn nation and somebody trying to escape to go somewhere else. But once again, the lyrics here are vague enough that you could be like, it could be, you could be like, you could feel like, you know, somewhat like a refugee because you just got out of like an abusive relationship or you just got out of a a troubled home life, whatever, whatever you want to connect with here, you can, you don't have to let, you know, you don't have to like have Bono tell you exactly what it is because, and that, that's what makes, you know, a song like this so great. And a song that, that can stand the test of time. Whereas a lot of U2 stuff later in the, in their career doesn't really do that. I think for the sound of the song and this song is also an outlier. It's kind of weird on this album because it was the, the producer credit is Bill Whelan as opposed to being specifically Steve Lillywhite. So I don't know what happened in the studio that had someone else coming in to work on this track specifically. Um, But it's interesting because I don't know if what bearing that played on, the way the song sounds like, but this is a song that I think different from many U2 songs that yes, they have that like tight rhythm section, but it's a song where like Mullen is banging away on drums and Clayton is laying down this like really cool bass line, and the edge is just kind of coming in sporadically like here and there. And I feel like it's this like awesome driving powerful song that you can imagine like, if they were playing this live, you'd be in a crowd. You'd be like, war, yeah, war, you know, and, <laughs> and singing along, you know, getting really into it. But they never played this song live. Right. This song sounds like it was made to be played live and it's never been played ever. And at one concert, at least that we know of. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I So I, I'm not really sure, but I, I feel like, and we, we talked about kind of the dynamics of the band where this is very much, you know, Bono and the Edges band, despite the fact that, they do appear to have some kind of democratic voting system in the band to decide, you know, what to do with things. But it just seems like, I don't know if the song, the edge was just like, Hey, I don't get to do a lot on this one. So we, we probably, <laughs> we probably shouldn't do this live, but I feel like it kind of, it kind of points to like some, some strange choices that the band would make. Cause I, I just don't know why you would never choose to play this one live. I mean, the draw, the drums sound like these crazy tribal drums with this like great i don't know if it qualifies as a drum solo but you could just like picture it in concert so if bono did want to like you know walk into the crowd and hug people he could just do it during this like crazy cool drum break and it would make for this like you know cool live moment since he's like into that kind of thing so i i, I don't know the, the song just seems to offer a lot of opportunities for the band as like a live band and i think that's kind of maybe something important to remember with this band and something that I kind of forget in, you know, not being a a huge fan of this band is what a good live band they are. 
I think you get so hung up on like the individual records or some of the individual songs that sometimes a lot of the problems that you might have with like certain U2 tracks are being like, oh, this one's, you know, it's okay. You know, it kind of like gets my feet tapping or whatever. And then you hear it live and you're like, holy shit. Like when you hear the song with, you know, in in a stadium of, you know, 30,000 people, it takes on a like a whole different life of its own. And I feel like the song kind of is overlooked not only in U2's catalog and on this record, but also they kind of made it overlooked as like a potentially like really cool song to play live. Absolutely. I totally agree. And and to to prep for this episode, I I watched the the Red Rocks concert, the Under the Blood Red Sky concert that was recorded at the Red Rocks Amphitheater. And it was recorded during this tour. And and it really is incredible. Like they, I mean, they are just so full of energy. And I the best the best way I can put it is is that the band that walks out on stage when that show begins is a band that's ready to prove what it is. It's not a band resting on its laurels. It's not a band that's up and coming. It's a band that knows who it is and is ready to show the world who it is at that moment. And it's just, it's just, a, it's a really, really great concert film and it's a great show and they play so many good songs and it's not bogged down by any of the pomp of their later career. I mean, this is a pre pre Joshua tree show. It's, it's even, it's even before the unforgettable fire. So it's like, there are so many U2 classics that are not in this concert and, and it, it really was incredible. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This is a song that seems like it was designed to play live and it's crazy that it's never been played live. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool to hear something like this from a, from a band as huge as you two, because it's almost like you can imagine like what the band could have been like if it didn't get bogged down by its own pretension if it, its own ego if it just if it just stuck to you know being experimental and and trying to keep on proving itself then you know who knows what the band would be like today maybe well of course maybe they wouldn't be the biggest band in the world though so <laughs> they showed you <laughs> To build on what we were talking about a little bit, I kind of feel like I, I came into U2 at a wrong time and I didn't really understand enough about the band because when I started listening to the band, I probably first heard Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me from the Batman Forever soundtrack. And and it's a, it's a good song, but it is so not representative of what most U2 songs sound like. So there was that. And then it was also the the Pop Mart tour that we had mentioned earlier, which was just this like grotesquely over the top tour where it's supposed to be that they're commenting on, you know, consumerism and marketing and things, but they're also participating in it. And it just makes for this kind of like confusing experience of what you're supposed to like come away with thinking about this band. So I, I was never kind of able to understand that this was a band that had like these far more 
humble beginnings. And I think that's kind of how I always feel about this band where I'm just like, as Scott mentioned, yeah, they could have been this totally different band and gone in a totally different direction. And by doing this, I feel like I'm not quite sure how to ever feel about them. So I've never really dug much beyond the greatest hits. So I think in doing this episode, I've kind of gained a greater appreciation, especially having the greatest hits album to be like, oh, these two songs are from this record. This song is from this record. It's made me kind of understand their career and their trajectory a little bit more. And I think also maybe understand why the band made the choices they did, because these were all, you know, super young kids. Nobody was particularly like great at their instruments or anything you know nobody had any like formal musical training or you know went to you know some you know study with someone or some kind of like you know fancy school or anything so when they're all like learning these things it is as we mentioned these really humble beginnings so you almost feel like the band is so over the top because they felt like they had to prove themselves and prove that they could do more than you know, what, where they came from, which I guess is something that like most bands do, but I feel like they really went out of their way to kind of create sort of their own mythology, if that even makes any sense, because it's really just, you know, this group of kids got together, started playing, made a band, you know, started, you know, got enough um, momentum together to, to make majestic albums like the Joshua Tree and things like that. And then do whatever they felt like doing. Uh, but when you kind of like go back to their career and you listen to these earlier albums, yeah, there is like just this honesty and passion there that I feel like is devoid in the later albums. Like even, even on kind of like heartfelt tracks, um, like stuck in a moment you can't get out of, which is supposed to be this like, you know, don't be depressed, kind of like be happy song. Um, but it just feels like in kind of like empty sentiment, versus you know some of the stuff on the the earlier records and that's kind of like how i always sort of hear you two is i can't kind of reconcile the the latter years of you two and i mean that could mean anything from like you know 91 onward <laughs> so that that's kind of you know a large <laughs> a large chunk of career but yeah i, I mean i always listen to this band and i'm like oh like they're good and they do some different things and they sound unique and they're these are all like admirable qualities of this band even bono you know i i know we 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 rag on bono quite a bit here but even he uses his you know platform for you know mostly good causes and and you know to promote like goodwill and humanity and things and yeah to still be able to like come off as distasteful i feel like that just kind of sums up youtube for me where it's just like you're doing the right thing and it's cool and there's something I enjoy about it, but also there's just this like weird soulless feeling I get sometimes when listening to the music, especially the later records. And I feel like I, that that's why I'm a greatest hits YouTube person. Cause I feel like I can't ever kind of shake that feeling, but it was cool to listen to, to, to do this episode and listen to war because it really kind of reconfigured some of, my thought process about this band. So now when I hear you two, I won't like roll my eyes immediately. I'll be like, well, they did have that one good record that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that where they were, they, that one record where they were really trying. <laughs> yeah. But I, I have a bit of a similar take on them, which is, uh, I like 
millions and millions of other people. I first got into U2 through the Joshua Tree, which of course, like I said, is not only their biggest record, but one of the biggest records of all time. I mean, the Joshua Tree is just massive from a sales standpoint, from a critical standpoint. I mean, it's just huge. And so that record came out in 1987. So I was four years old when that came out. So obviously the the height of U2 by the time I actually started like actively listening to them, by the time I bought the Joshua Tree and put it into my compact disc player, th- th- all of that stuff had already passed. Like you said, like they were already the Pop Mart band. They were already this, you know, just farce basically. And so I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was what the Joshua Tree told me. And when I listened to the Joshua Tree, I was like, wow, like this is a great band. Like these are great songs. Like the whole way that the album starts with that, you know, drone of, of guitars, you know, synthesizer sounds. And then, and then the edge guitar kind of fades in. And then the band comes in with this driving beat. And it's just, you know, classic Brian Eno production of just, you know, it's great. It's grandiose. It's huge. It's amazing. And then as a kid hearing Bullet the Blue Sky, which is by far my favorite U2 song of all time. Just like this like cynical, dark, angry drop D rocker. 100. 200. <laughs> yeah, just like just dirty, grimy, amazing, amazing rock song that, you know, once again, totally just like the song The Refugee just doesn't sound like anything U2 has ever done or will ever do. And just just great, great stuff. And so I, I loved them. I was like, this is a great band. I really like them. And it wasn't until I actually got into the band and started reading about them and listening to their newer stuff and listening to their older stuff and all this stuff that I realized like how... I, I was so naive you know, at that point in time. <laughs> I had such a narrow view of them and that narrow view was good. And it was, you know, they were a good band and they had great songs. They had this massive album. And then I started learning more and then that kind of, that, 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 sh- that you know, that, that vision I had of them got pulled away. And, and it's unfortunate because, you know, I, I know that there's a, there's a lot of talk about, you know, like, there's a there's a very famous Chris Cornell thing that you and I have referred to numerous times in our personal conversations. We probably even mentioned it a couple of times here on Skipped on Shuffle, where Chris Cornell was responding to a, a person saying that Down on the Upside was you know kind of a departure for the band and fans might be upset because it doesn't sound like their old stuff or whatever. And Chris Cornell was basically like, you can still listen to the old stuff. Like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically like like upset. He's like basically you there's you can still go back and listen to bad motor finger that album hasn't changed like you can't you can't criticize us nobody's walking into your house taking the <laughs> yeah yeah the, the, the records on your taking shelf. the stuff you enjoy away from you <laughs> yeah it's like it's like you can still listen to that we have to move on because we're people and we can't do the same thing over and over again but if you only want to listen to bad motor finger it's right there go for it you know and so it's like yeah i don't want to like i don't want to criticize you too for what they did after the Joshua Tree and an Octune Baby and started going off in this crazy, crazy direction. I can't use that as ammo against their earlier stuff and like make it tarnish it. But I don't know, for whatever reason, like that kind of happens with this band where it's like, you know, you listen to something like the Joshua Tree and Where the Streets Have No Name comes on and you're, you know, you can't help but think about you know, stuck in a moment you can't get out of, or like, you know, these (laughs) awful other songs that they've done in their latter career that are just the best way I can describe them is you two, like the four guys in you two trying to sound like 
U2 from pre-1990. Like, like that's the only way I can describe, you know, latter U2. It, it doesn't sound, like you said, it doesn't sound genuine. It doesn't sound like a band trying to prove itself. It sounds like a band, I don't know, trying to replicate itself in a way. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but the point is, is that when I was a kid and I first heard this band, I was blown away and I loved it. And it was just some amazing, amazing, amazing music. And then nowadays it's one of those situations where, you know, you can't even in certain circles, you can't even say that you like, you know, the Joshua tree because people, you know, music nerds are going to criticize you like, Oh my God, you too. Oh my God, Bono. Oh my God, the edge. Oh my God, pop Mart. Oh my God, rattle and hum. You know, all these things that they can use to criticize. It's like, you kind of have to slink back and be like, okay, you're right. You know, I understand. Yeah, it's a band with a lot of baggage. Yeah, it, it, that, that's a great way of putting it. That's a very succinct way of putting it. I should have just said that instead of rambling. <laughs> but yeah, no, it is a band with a lot of baggage, and it's unfortunate. It's it's kind of similar to one of the one of the one of the very first set of episodes we did, which was Coldplay, which is a similar kind of thing where it's mm. like you and I, we love the first two Coldplay records, and we will unabashedly say that we do. But at the same time, in certain circles, we wouldn't admit that because people would be like, "What Coldplay? You like Coldplay?" And it's like. Well, no, I mean, yeah, like, you know, the early stuff's really good. Anyway, I got to go. It's co- it's complicated. <laughs> so yeah, U2 kind of has that thing for me. And it's unfortunate because, you know, everything on the Joshua Tree and earlier has a lot of merit to it. And then everything after that is touch and go. So, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of U2 fans who are listening to this who are going to be really upset with us. But you know what? Tough. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.